Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crit. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. With Cannes 2022 kicking off last week, Film Comment is on the ground, reporting on all the cinematic excitement at the film industry's grandest annual event with the help of our On the Cross Set crew of contributors. On today's podcast, Devika sat down with Ine Prakash, programmer and founder of the Prismatic Ground Film Festival, and Vadim Rizov, Director of Editorial Operations at Filmmaker Magazine. The three discussed their highlights of the past few days of Cannes and their experience of the festival so far. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Ine and Vadim, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really great to be chatting with you here at Cannes, uh, even though we all live in the same borough in New York. I'm curious how the festival has been for you so far. Uh, What are your first impressions? This is an enormously expensive place to be that I would not be able to attend uh, without uh, basically being an employed person here for work. Nothing but respect to all the freelancers making it work and just like banking coverage and interviews like crazy for the rest of the year. We are at a point in the festival where what I think are some of the objectively like big ticket titles, uh, namely David Cronenberg and Kelly Record, haven't shown. Uh, if you are in New York and, and liked by uh, the publicity firm that is handling it there, you may have already seen. Uh, David Kernberg's Crimes of the Future. <laughs> yes, but, but we, have we, not yet. we are not allowed to talk about it. No, we can yeah. talk about it. <laughs> anyway. Under I, I signed a blood oath, okay? Oh, the NDA. They will come shoot me in the night if I say a single word. So Yes. Okay, so let's talk about some of these movies. In the last couple of days that I've been here, I've seen one great movie. But the first movie that I watched was not great. It was God's Creatures. And I was curious about it. I actually... So what I've been following as a rule at this festival is not reading descriptions, not watching trailers, going in as blind as I can just to be like completely surprised. So this was a film that I didn't know what it was about for a long time, even while watching it. It is an Irish drama starring Emily Watson and Paul Mescal, among others. And it's about this family, this fishing family. Paul Mescal plays the son who disappeared for a number of years, went to Australia, and then suddenly reappears on the day that one of his friends or one of the local uh, boys uh, died while fishing due to the tide. And apparently there's this Irish fishing tradition of not learning how to swim because that makes sure that you don't try to save someone who's drowning and I didn't quite grasp the logic but that is sort of you know that that is kind of like this framework that opens the film uh and I thought it was like a Chekhov's tradition or something you know the opening death by drowning was gonna go somewhere and it was gonna come back to us in some way I won't say more And then the story takes a strange turn. So for the first half, it's just this guy is back. It's all moody. It's all these zooms and these shots of people, like long shots of people, like framed within doors and windows and kind of this. I think in a we were talking about it or or I was talking to someone who called it a 24 trying to do miserabilism. Yeah. And, it you know, I know there's been a lot of debate about whether there's a quote unquote A24 aesthetic. And I think it can get stretched sometimes, but it certainly does feel like, you know, was there a contractual mandate here for slow zooms, you know, uh, assonant strings and arrhythmic percussion? There there are certain elements that feel a bit can. Yeah. And that feel that feel tropey. 
I, I was curious what it was going to build to. And then it took a very dramatic turn where um, Paul Mescal's character is accused by a woman who's a friend of the family of raping her. And his mother is sort of embroiled in that. You know, she's kind of in denial and she's grappling with that. And I, I can't reveal how this movie ends, but it ends in such a carceral way to me, like the way it handles the politics of this rape and it's kind of the injustice around it is so strangely melodramatic, but also carceral. Like it's not thought through at all. And it, I could not figure out what it's trying to say about this sort of crime and what it means to participate or rectify or remedy or, or I don't know how to really deal with this kind of injustice. And so the ending, like, really put me off and I thought the dialogue was just very very cringe uh very overly poetic in a way that felt extremely unnatural the title of the movie <laughs> appears as a line spoken by yeah I actually was on board with the film at least maybe not all the way up to but certainly not after the, the ending you allude to I love melodrama um but this was just abrupt and ham-fisted I uh, and I want to shout out that also this was co-directed by Anna Rose Homer and Sela Davis. That's who, right. Who was her yeah, co-writing yeah. partner on the Fitz, um, and they definitely are a talented team. You know, there's a lot to admire here um, in the scene work. But as you said, it, it doesn't quite come together at the end. It's it's a really it's largely about the violence of men. You know, in this small Irish community and the history of that. You know, the the fishing, the dumb drowning rule you allude to is like, there's a character who points out the logic of that, is, and that's the kind of character that represents the new generation. And the women, as you as you say, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it feels it feels like it, it didn't know where to go at a certain point and, and made a clumsy and simple decision. Any dissent uh, from this side of the table? No, today? just only only harsher things to say with, <laughs> with apologies to all. It should be noted that this is uh, a, a, a film not written by its directors. It's written by a gentleman named Shane Crowley. And of course, kind of brief digression here, You know, the, the whole idea of Cannes Film Festival being the only place you can see these movies as a premiere obviously is not true if you live in a major metropolitan city um, where pre-screenings are tiered out and offered all kinds. So in this case, it, you know, it's, this is a, a movie that has a BBC and Screen Ireland component and apparently had screened quite a lot in London prior to premiering here and had developed a bad reputation instantly. But it was kind of pointed out to me that this is in some ways, I guess, like a, a prototypical, not so much A24, but a BBC project that has been uh, rigorously workshopped. Scenes are back-to-back -back parallel motifs, edits, whatever, all the way through so that you cannot possibly miss the line of argument. The line of argument is basically men aren't shit, which is, you know, all well and good. There is, you know, for, uh, you know, for for the, the there's lots of crucifixes and fish ha being cut <laughs> and um there is a line of dialogue about men always being babies with their mouth their mouths to their mother's tits uh the messages are clear uh listen to women rape culture is bad toxic masculinity is bad these are all bad things i agree however this doesn't leave us a whole lot to do during the course of the movie and it is kind of an exercise in the limits of what looking good can do for you because it looks really good it's got it's got tons of grain and structure its biggest asset is you know the, the novelty of both the the fishing canning factory and the visuals of oyster farming none of which i knew anything about i still haven't figured out what half grown bags of half growns are there's a lot of detail about 
that way of life and the trade, which which is a quite beguiling at first, but it just all falls to the wayside in service of this message that you're talking about, you know, that just gets hammered home at the end in a very confused political way. Um, I mean, it's it's clear enough what the correct response to the movie is. There's not a whole lot of mystery yeah. here. Um, and it is the kind of thing that could almost dare you to uh, say that it's not good. But it's not very good. <laughs> I, I think this might be a good segue to talk about another movie that I thought was like sort of similar in some respects, which is uh, Ennis Main by Mark Jenkin, which is a Cornish movie, right? It's set in yes. Cornwall. And there were some strange similarities because it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's this woman who's living in isolation uh, by the seaside and I don't even know how to describe this movie, frankly. Yeah, it's, kind of rock the ro- the similarity of the rocky coastal yeah. stuff and the and the tradition and traditions y- and the drownings. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. This film is interesting. Yeah, it's about a, a solitary uh, woman who's seemingly living alone on this island and responsible for making observations about it. And it seems to be maybe slowly losing her mind or having supernatural aspects of the place's history and and um, nature sort of emerge over time. And it's on paper, like, entirely my shit, right up my alley. You know, it's like a beautiful um, Academy Ratio 16 millimeter color reversal uh, experimental film, essentially. But um, for me, it ended up being a little structurally compromised um, and a little... um, a little uh, elementary with its symbolism. So I, wa- I want to actually hear more about this structural compromise. I uh, yeah, I don't I don't think that I was. Uh, now I'm on the spot. But <laughs> uh, you on the film comment podcast, you got to be ready to defend what you say. I um yeah, I, I just I think there were a lot of interesting ideas that weren't um, strung together in a compelling manner, and that it was entirely too long. Do you disagree? I mean, I. I like the. I think it's probably one of the more fun things that I've seen here. But I was also kind of sympathetic to someone outside after my screening. You know, his brief exchange of like, are are like all of these images enough? And the other person was like, No, absolutely not. And I was like, Well, I think so. But it's a pretty. You know, I guess the 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 crux here is that this is a. You know, this is a pretty tropey movie that engages with dozens and dozens of like the you know these quote unquote like weird old uh, England movies that I've never seen, but that I've read about. And so you had an anthropological interest. I mean, I, I have, I mean, it's just like, to the extent that like the movie just looks so good and everything is about color and grain and everything is either an extreme close up or an extreme like far away shot and is always like messing with scale and stuff. And superimposition. Right. Yeah. And then you could ask a question, well, we're basically, you know, we're just basically rearranging a bunch of things. Like it would be the least surprising thing in the in the world to see a double of yourself having disturbing sex with somebody. You know, like that's just kind of what we would expect to have happen. Right. And so the movie doesn't have any surprises. I actually find that kind of relaxing, you know, it's just like because I was not, you know, I'm sure there are probably historically based answers to certain kinds of questions about the premise like what allows the premise of the movie to unfold it does seem very loaded with a with a history i don't understand i I feel like we should mention that there is this thing that structures the movie this through line where she is studying some flowers Uh, it looks like what she's observing is whether lichen is growing on these flowers and she also has some kind of scar that starts to like mirror the flowers and things start to grow on the scar and 
when that first was revealed, it was this moment of violence that took me by surprise, this moment of kind of visceral violence in a very beautiful film. That All the violent scenes are also beautiful, but until that point, it had seemed very kind of beautiful in a soft and, like you were saying, soothing way. And then it became there were these moments of shock and that's when for me it started to unravel a little bit because I couldn't quite, they, these moments seemed a bit trite to me. Like the way the film is using all the formal elements that you mentioned in as being up your alley felt a bit passe to me, uh, you know, in this kind of 16 millimeter experimental documentary. Again, cultural context might demystify it some might, of that. But, you know, there's the, the John Barth, uh, short story where you know he's annotating his own like incomprehensible short story and he explains everything at the end he's like this is to show that answers can often be disappointing you know, like I don't I don't think that um, I think it might make it worse or less, less satisfying and I think that it's kind of decoupling from any basic ideas of, of actual visceral horror um, or resolution made it more fun to be inside I should buy this thing sounds great um, this is the prototypical kind of hauntological, um, spooky folk uh, horror. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, there's like there's yeah. like dozens of British albums like this from like the early aughts, and I like all of them basically. And I would take an M, you know, an MP3 of the soundtrack like in five seconds. Oh. So yeah, it does sound. It sounds. It looks entrancing. Right. Yeah. But and so, but at the same time, I am totally sympathetic to anyone who's just like, well, why bother? You know, <laughs> because like, there's not. I I would not necessarily be convinced that there's a whole lot going on in there. But I don't really think there needs to be. It's you know, just splashes of color. Yeah, but you know, when you okay, you know, when you are as jet-lagged as I was and tired and trying to watch five things a day, which I'm sure you both have been doing as well, I realize my standards really go up. I'm like... It, I feel like I my need, standards go down, actually. No, mine are like, there needs to be way more than splashes of color. I happen to be sitting directly behind Vadim for this film, and I did see his head <laughs> nod off. Into that I was <laughs> No, what I do is I get twitchy and kind of caffeine agitated. Wow. I would cop to it if I had fallen asleep, but I had not. Calling I do, I do calling kind of like move out. around and weave a little bit, <laughs> um, but I was pretty awake. That said, I, I would happily go, if I found out this filmmaker had another movie out, I would happily go see it. I, I plan to, I've heard amazing things about Bait. Bait, um, Bait is, I, I think Bait is great. And I I'm excited shorts. to see that, yeah. Um, I, so I was looking forward to this one. I think it just lacks some kind of rigor that, uh, those previous movies had. We should also point out that when this thing is released as a quote-unquote horror film, people are going to be wildly, wildly disappointed. And it's acquired by Neon. Yes, so for North America. Yeah, yeah, which, so interesting to see how they'll yeah, market it. It's an experimental film. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think maybe we should talk about a movie that at least one of us here likes a lot. I don't know about you both. And that's the new Mia Hansen Love, One Fine Morning. Vadim, why don't you tell us what it's about? It's it's about Mia Hansen Love's life, except for when she says it's not about her life. Um, it's about it's about a translator who uh, whose father is in the grips of a disease that I, in my incomprehensible notes, don't allow me to specify. But it's it seems like Alzheimer's, but it's not. Uh, it's Benson syndrome. Thank you. I yeah. I could not read and my it's notes. And it's it's an illness that affects vision and speech, right. and then also you know causes dementia. So yeah. the the movie is essentially about her navigating simultaneously like the stresses of dealing with that, which leads her into the the weeds of French elder care, which is as depressing as it. Might might be anywhere else at the same time as she begins an affair with a cosmochemist who is is an old friend and melville poupeau yes 
and uh, and and that I believe is essentially the entire movie. It is. Um, it is simple at one level. I was just completely blown away by it personally, and um, I'm really glad it's here because it feels good to have seen one great movie at least so far. And I was just really touched by something that I think Mia does well in all her films, but particularly this one, is this kind of coexistence of grief and joy, which sounds so like trite and pat to put it that way. But the way she captures um, the kind of multiplicity of life and how there can be something that you're losing, but at the same time, something that you're gaining, which in this case, Sandra, the character played by Leah, she's losing her father, who seems like, you know, one of the great loves of her life. She's followed in his footsteps, um, uh, you know, and kind of seems like she's very intellectually inspired by him. She's a translator. He's a scholar uh, based on Mia Hansen Love's father, I believe, who also um, was ill, maybe with the same disease or a similar disease. And at the same time, she is finding love after many years of, it seems like, not opening herself up to it. And there's this thing, you know, the way she edits her films where um, it, it, these moments like collide into each other, you know. And so it's not it's not like I, I wouldn't say it, it's as simple as she's cutting between these two strands. They just kind of uh, have the sense of, you know, in intersecting each other in a way that feels not necessarily naturalistic, but at the same time gives evokes this kind of temporality of life where unlike in narrative one thing doesn't actually consume you all the time yeah There's always multiple things it feels a lot more textured than parallel strands and, exactly. and reminds me of like a, a kind of style that I had an awakening to probably on on seeing Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret you know where you, you see the full density of, of a person's world right and I think that the fact that she does that with a pretty sort of dramatic kind of storyline about you know, seeing her father basically decline. Um, and there's this thing where Leia Seydoux is kind of always on the verge of tears. So even when she's like on a date with Melville, Melville Poupeau, she like suddenly like bursts into tears for a couple minutes. And that emotional capriciousness was so indicative of the movie to me. Like the movie feels able to so effortlessly be on, teeter on this like, precipice of emotion and that also has to do with how you just kind of carry big emotions through your daily life and sometimes they just burst out but they don't need to take over like your day or what you're doing um so yeah I I just and it, it looks beautiful it's 35 millimeter so Paris captured in 35 millimeter uh it you know all the people in it are beautiful Pascal Gregory plays the father and there's something really interesting about seeing this guy that we know from the films of Eric Romare like here losing his facility with language you know he's like and and Leah Sandra his daughter has to like uh fill in his sentences with words and there's also all this stuff about finding the right care home for him which is almost like a social realist strand of the film where they're going to one care home after another and you get all these details of how much they cost and how the how the services are. And again, that's almost like a Ken Loachy vibe to it, like how it details the bureaucracy, but again, done with this absolute 
gentleness and lightness that, you know, of Mia Hansen loves. So that's my strong pitch for and now you have comments. Well, I mean, let me let me say I'm a big I'm a big fan of Mia Hansen Love. You know, I really liked Bergman Island. Um, I, I like Eden a lot. I and I think All Is Forgiven is incredible. Um, you know, and uh, I all all the things you say about the way she textures life and and pulls out moments of subtle moments of character. I agree with and, and are true. And I love the Paris porn. I don't think it's a spoiler to say the final shot of this movie is a beautiful, um, the view from Sacre Coeur in, in Montmartre. Um, but uh, I don't, and I, I need to be careful about how I phrase this because I'm, I'm a little sleep deprived. I feel like I'm going to be raked over the coals as a woke scold. But I, there's a certain kind of French film to me that feels incredibly insulated by its whiteness. And I, it's more a sensation that I feel in response to watching it than it is something I can fully articulate. But that's something that kind of happened uh, for me here where you would almost, I watch plenty of movies with exclusively white casts, you know, that's most of the movies I watch and I love many of them. But something about <laughs> this, this is one, the pull quote this one this in, right, yeah. <laughs> something about this one in particular and some other uh, French films feels like, again, particularly insulated uh with its whiteness and uh you know to the extent where you would almost swear that like uh france is not a multiracial society and it's something about the way the camera treats whiteness too i, I um again it's not something that i i can fully articulate but it is a response i had to the film to be completely honest as well as admiring. I, I wonder if that popped out at you because um mia's movies often don't have um non-white people in them and when this movie does they uh tend to be hospital right they're in a service role i actually don't find it hard to believe that in that milieu that there's not a lot of people of color in the social circle (laughs) um and then you you get into the weeds of that like well does she have an obligation to represent like the reality of contemporary yeah paris and what to me is often like the kind of cautionary question is like be really careful what you wish for you know like (laughs) you don't necessarily want that to happen let me say you know i think that this this I think Claire Denis tried to address this maybe a little bit in her most recent film in a clumsy way oh, that didn't that work. Was, Not yeah, Stars at was, Noon, but both sides of the play. We, we, should, we should specify, we're talking about this year's first Claire Denis movie, not the one that's premiering here, although we fear for her now that we know that she's said a movie about Nicaragua and shot in Panama, but uh, we'll get there. Um, yeah, I have problems with how race right. is dealt with in both sides of the play. So, uh, there, there's so. a very clumsy way to address <laughs> it, and I'm not saying it should necessarily be addressed. It's also not, again, not just that there are no people of color or that there's one peripheral person of color. It's a something about the um, atmosphere of, of whiteness. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I will say, you know, I do think that what Vadim is saying is correct, that she, Mia, I think, pays a lot of attention to the milieu. Her films are often about milieu because they're often about professional communities, familial communities, intellectual communities. And so, and they're personal. 
And so I I have never necessarily honestly paid much attention to the whiteness uh, of her films because they it feels like these are closed and very organic and realistic worlds to me. Obviously, I have only spent an evening in Paris and that was a week ago. So I don't know, uh, you know, how much it holds up to reality. But I do want to point out that there is in this film and in some of the previous films too, I would say, there is a kind of gentle parody of the class and uh, cultural milieu of these characters. And in this film, Nicole Garcia plays uh, Sandra's mother and um, Pascal Gregory's ex-wife. And there's this pretty funny strand about how she's this, she's this old woman who's become some kind of eco-activist. And her acts of eco-activist and eco-terrorism include like, what was it, vandalizing a portrait of Macron and, you know, these... And she talks about them in this very self-amused and smug way and everyone else in the family kind of makes fun of, you know, it tolerates her in this amused and pleasant way. So I I was really surprised by that. I couldn't really recall anything quite like it in her recent other films. And it made me think that there is an awareness of what place these characters occupy. And it's a film that's, you know, that is humanist in a sense. Like it is about... familial relationships, you know, father-daughter relationships and and romantic relationships. But it does have an eye toward where these people are in French society. Yeah. Maybe I'm giving her too much credit. No, I don't don't disagree with that at all. And, you know, I would would just repeat that. Yeah, I wouldn't clumsily want anyone to insert characters of color for the sake of it. Yeah. I had I had a terrible joke about which which actor I thought she might be comfortable with having on screen in that capacity, but I'm going to skip it. I do want to point oh, out God. that um, <laughs> Just... yeah, I do want to point out that you know she's a really cinephilic director. She always has been from the very first film, All Is Forgiven, um, stars Gerard Blaine's son. Right, Gerard Blaine is a very important influence for her, and she cast his son this part. And she's always kind of had it's 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 kind of the thing where like the movies are cinephilic, but they're often not actually about movies, which is actually a very rare thing. Often cinephilic movies are often are, are also about cinema, um, and this is not. But it does have her highest proportion of just kind of like supercharged French performers. You know, Pascal Gregory and Nicole Garcia on screen together. You know, like I think the degree of insulation is almost that it's coming from inside the super successful side of French cinema and the most well-known parts of French cinema. And this is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is it becomes extremely difficult and I think maybe not even desirable to view them as like uh, fully isolated, rounded characters, you know, even to the extent of just trying to map it onto the particulars of her life, which she kind of both does and doesn't encourage in her interviews, but which becomes kind of unavoidable, you know, in the same way. I will say I interviewed her this morning. Yeah. So uh, coming soon to film comment. Right. And she spoke a lot about her personal life. And I think yeah. this one, she's very open. And it, it, it. it's yeah. it's in the press kit that I looked at as well. But then there are always just these kind of lines and these insistences like, well, this fictionalization is actually a meaningful destabilization of truth uh-huh. and fiction. It's like, well, you know, uh, but... I, I, I do think that maybe that sense of insularity does come from just the fact that she's like a really cinephilic person and that cinephilic documents tend to be like by definition kind of insular. Yeah, and I think in a, I would say that maybe your frustration is kind of more broadly with, you know, what what kind of French cinema gets I mean, this is like unreconstructed bourgeois cinema. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Right. Perhaps I'm just getting disinterested in the minutia of white bourgeois French life. I think that would be more than fair. Yeah, Yeah. I think that, which is, 
which is I've been there for sure. But I think this this film touched and me. And yet, is this a good time to say there was an, <laughs> a film about the minutia of white bourgeois French Starring life Melville that I rather Poupo. enjoyed? <laughs> you enjoyed that one? Let's okay, lead us into it. Yeah, so Desplechen, uh, who I'm you know historically a fan of. I haven't seen a couple of the more recent ones, but you know, like Christmas Tale was incredibly formative, as well as uh, My Sex Life and Kings and Queen. And um, yeah, I mean, he's another filmmaker who definitely knows how to um, texture his his characters' lives. And this one is about, uh, it's called Brother and Sister, and no, no surprise, it's about uh, a brother and sister who have an incredibly acrimonious relationship. Um, and, uh, you know, the first scene, it kicks off with kind of a sucker punch of, of seeing, you know, the ugliness of that relationship. And then kind of, jumps around in time showing us different um different the brother pieces and sister are Marion Cotillard and uh Melville Poupeau. Right. And yeah. they're and they're extraordinary um in their roles. Um and there's all this other stuff happening. There's again there's um you know issues about elder care in a different way that arise. Um but again the relationship between adult children and their aging parents and in this in this context um what it means for the relationship between um, the two title characters. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I was just incredibly moved by it. Uh, you're, the face you're making at me <laughs> makes you think you were. Listeners, I am making a skeptical <laughs> face. I don't know. This is such a strange movie. Vadim and I talked about it a little last night. Uh, I And I was surprised to learn that it is not adapted from anything. I was like, really? He came up with this all on his own? This completely ridiculous story? He has story? a really novelistic panache. <laughs> Well, is how I would I think I it was strangely enjoyable. Like I enjoyed watching it uh, particularly because I think it gets really campy at moments, but I wish it had gone either full camp or had toned it down a little. Like, you know, I think it should have gone one or the other direction because it dragged on and on. And it there is just this the sense of this strange sense of uh, disproportionate performance. Like, I don't think you ever properly learn what caused the rift between brother and sister. Like, you don't actually figure out the exact. Yeah, and event. this is this is addressed a little bit in the Preskin interview with with him, um, where he actually quotes his own character and says it would be like disrespectful to to say why I hate it. But I I mean I think like the honest answer is that like his movies are predicated upon familiar hatred as a constant, and so the the particulars of why they might hate each other are relevant to the desire to have an excuse to have people scream at each other yet again. Right, but then that there, there's this weird disconnect for me where even the reason that is gestured at, which maybe he was he did some Nausgardist. Uh, ish thing and like wrote about his family or something and I, I think it's implied that this happened after their rift and the way it's kind of presented in the movie is that like she just has a moment where she decides that she hates him yeah and <laughs> I just I could not buy that and I could not buy the histrionics that emerge around that I mean there are scenes of Marion Cotillard like collapsing as soon as she sees him him like having these huge fits and you know losing it at her son and there's all these dark and sad things from their past that are, you know, that slowly emerge. And none of it ever, to me, yeah, justifies what I think are some of the campy elements of this film. And so it just felt really 
stretched and overdone and sort of like an acting showcase at times, which is they're great performers, but it just began to grate for me. It's high pitch melodrama for sure. Uh, but it isn't well, this even is, a- this is keyed down from where it used yeah. to be. Where it used to cut so fast, he used to be so jagged, everything and there would be like back to back to back to back 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 music and there's like almost right, music yeah. for like the first thirty or forty yeah, minutes. Yeah. So your problem is that it is toned down. I think that- I think if anything there's yeah, there's like a gap here like increasing is like where it's like why is this so like chilled out considering everything that's it's, going on exactly it's it, it it i don't even think it's that much of a melodrama there are it has melodramatic elements but it plays out like something else something novelistic i don't know that has a different pace to it yeah um yeah and, but from the beginning of the movie it's announcing itself with these loud histrionics and dramatic plot turns it, it gives you what it is right up front. Which founded in anything for me emotionally believable or, you know, justifiable. I feel like so many of his movies used to be about characters who were either implicitly or explicitly, like, dealing with actual serious mental illness. You know, like, and there, there's a strain here about where, you know, where Marion Cotillard goes to a family friend and asks for some prescriptions. But I, I remember almost hearing these same kinds of objections, you know, like almost 20 years ago for Kings and Queen in particular, where the question would be like, well, why? You know, why are these people acting crazy? Like, why is all of a sudden like Matthew Amalric having a, a breakdown and, and breakdancing? And you give like a flip answer, which I think is like the real answer is because it's fun. I would you know, like I am not sure how much these movies are serious. Those explorations movies of had a formal idiom that right they match they, right. there's there is a kind of one-to-one-ish relationship where you you can see that kind of losing control being part of an affect you yeah. know and um i don't know uh maybe i'm reading i'm being the woke scold here but that scene in the pharmacy where marion Cotillard's character just like loses her shit at not this, the best scene in the film <laughs> this, poor well, this, I, I, this, this it seemed to be this almost certainly had to be the uh his version of the julianne moore freaking out in magnolia like <laughs> screaming it's kind of the same scene I, and i don't want to read too much into it but it was just all these things that don't really yeah that aren't very well explained and also don't have some kind of arc um and so then they they just feel annoying <laughs> it is hard to keep up with the dynamic between the two characters it seems to be constantly shifting not only because of the time jumps but because their emotions are very whimsical i think it is fair to say there's something with mental illness, but these are not characters who would ever seek out help for perceived mental illness. Although she does seek out medication. <laughs> she seeks out because medication. she wants to knock yes. herself out. Yeah. Right, exactly. And somehow, like, we don't even know, we don't even learn what happens after she just, like, stuffs a load of pills into her mouth in a pharmacy. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, one answer I could give, and I'm not sure I believe it, but I'll just put it out there for the sake of it, is that, you know, if, if you are somebody who deals with these kinds of massively formative traumatic events, and you spend decades of your life trying to deal with them, uh, you know, the kind of grim lesson that you can learn is that there is only so much resolution that you get on anything. You can be calmer about things, but you don't ever actually entirely get past them. So to the to the extent that there is this kind of what might be perceived as eternal disjuncture, it's, a, you know, maybe this like almost seems like it's literally made by a calmer person, which is not to say that this is a person who is OK with everything that has happened and whatever the core is, you know, that has driven him since La Vida More, which is, you know, 54 minutes of a family yelling at each other, a, a, a subject which has explored at greater extent of length in multiple films. Um, you know, it's just like, well, there's that desire to keep coming back to the, the imprint thing and also the thing that drives you that makes your scenes fun. And yet also being like, you know, 
three decades older and like for for whatever reason and this is another very self-conscious cinephilic director um choosing to do it in a, in a, a more self-consciously like old mastery type realm you know complete with like less sound and and uh slower camera movement and all that kind of the all the markers of uh uh, uh third act maturity or however you want to characterize it um i uh, and did you want to say something? No, I just another thought I had in in relation to the earlier comment about her seeking out the medication is that you know the um, the brother is also self medicating. Yes. There's an interesting substrand about oh God, yeah. substance oh. abuse that is never it's never fully addressed, and I I kind of like that. It's kind of a subtle. Um, yes, this is, this is a man who has made movies that have normalized drug use to an extent that is almost impossible to imagine in American film, where that kind of drug use would inevitably lead to like some kind of third act breakdown or mm. rehab or something. In his movies, people just do drugs, mm. exactly. which I really just appreciate. Yeah, now there are plenty of people who like just do drugs. Like that happens every day, right? And it's pointed out to his wife gently that he has a problem, but that never comes to a, a pitch or anything, right? Well. Another like interesting film and strangely enjoyable in a very different way from Brother and Sister was Ao, which Jonathan Romney on a previous podcast um, when we did a preview, he pointed out that it was probably Ao like the sound a donkey makes. Okay, very I'm not clarifying. gonna do what he did. He actually demonstrated that sound i'm not going to do that but uh i thought that was really interesting no but I, honestly i want to this is my this is i think my favorite film of the cool so far. okay tell us about um, it um you know it's uh, on the surface it, it's a remake of uh of course bresson's uh, hussard balthazar one of the most beautiful you know moving films ever made but it's smart enough not to be a totally literal remake um it's aesthetically doing something incredibly different. It's like a high velocity sort of uh, run through this obstacle course uh, of all these sort of um, Polish uh, rural social settings. Um, and from the start, it's got an incredible um, energy uh, that never lets up. It's like one fluid breath almost. Um and uh, it's also, uh, to me, incredibly moving. And even in its more, um, you know, there are incredibly obvious sort of um, moments that I've uh, that I've argued with people about. There's a moment early on where we see the donkey looking out of a out of a trailer and seeing horses running free and wild. And uh, you know, there there are these uh, really pronounced moments. But I I think that um, as a whole, it ends up being largely because of its stylistic thrust. Uh, an incredibly arresting experience. Um, you know, there were times even when I w was thinking about uh, Sokorov, um, something about its, um, you know, uh, la there's dialogue certainly, but um, uh, very, you know, little. And, uh, but something about the way it was shot, it's an Academy ratio and with a lot of like blurring and warping and, uh, yeah, what did you think, Vadim? I'm now, You've got a sharp look over here. Oh, I, no, 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 please. I, I I, feel like kind of vaguely ashamed of myself for not enjoying the movie at all because I feel like a lot of smart people here were like, this is the one. And I was just kind of like, I'm tired. I don't want to deal with this. Um, and I feel like I might have slightly underrated it. Um, it is a little bit, a lot closer actually to the trajectory of Balthazar and Macro than I would have expected. Um, its clumsiest elements are probably the whole, like, we are depicting the state of the Polish nation kind of aspect of it. And the animal rights aspect of it? Or this kind there, of, like, There is of a kind of 84-year-old edgelord quality to it at times. <laughs> um, but it is, I mean, 
it is it is kind of hard not to admire an 84 year old who wants to make this much trouble and like include just like really aggressive drone footage and insert um something we talked about last night like the um the the, the robot yeah the, mo- the moment that we are just kind of watching robot footage um yeah that just to maybe maybe describe it a little just so you know, like like the original Hazard Balthazar, this this is a I guess a, a kind of really depressing picaresque about a donkey going from one situation to another, and and it uh, it removes like forty percent of the connective tissue at least, and so at some point we are just watching a robot stumble around in a field. Um, yeah, and which, it's interesting because it comes after a moment of violence. Yes, and it, it really threw me for a loop. It, 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 and the, the the juxtaposition of those two scenes could certainly encourage like is like what's going on here? Are we trans- you know, like you had yeah. mentioned this really funny thing about the idea that maybe you thought that at some point the donkey was actually computer animated and now is being stripped down to like the skeletal wireframe animation, which I would did, be fun. I did think that I was like maybe the violence that we see was actually on the movie or something you know i was but this is shout out to the seven donkeys by the way it's on the six the the one donkey six donkeys six sorry six for one yeah six for one really i didn't i didn't i didn't know that they were all credited in the end it's a lot to put on one donkey Ah, okay you know i i don't really know what to make of this film i the first 15 minutes i thought were terrible and i almost considered walking out i thought this is this just seems childish and sentimental and all this, you know, aggressive light and camera work over, you know, overly stylized. But then it suddenly got really interesting and beautiful. And it kept kind of seesawing between those two for me throughout the film, which doesn't happen to me that often. You know, the film is not challenging me like every 10 minutes. And so I really did grow to admire that. And there is some fantastic imagery in this film. Um, Some of it you might think is a bit like drone shots and upside down shots. Some people might find, you know, a little trite. I actually thought they were pretty cool. And you know, there is this thing which with the donkey, I'm, I'm surprised it was played by seven donkeys because you do, or six donkeys, you do get to sort of I don't know, it, the donkey grows on you and you becomes endearing and you are tempted to anthropomorphize it, but you never actually can tell what it's doing or feeling and if it's just kind of roaming around people. Um, I, yeah, there's just this kind of sense of mystery laced with sweetness that kept me going till the end. Uh, we should mention that Isabel Huppert turns up at one point. There's all these like random interludes where it does feel like some kind of collection of short stories or short vignettes that are just tied together by the journey of right. this. Of this, I donkey. think those loud uh, visuals really tie tie it together, though. Just the consistency of them, um, but uh, you know, in the way it feels like the camera is almost moving. It's not one shot, obviously, but it feels almost like, and it's not made to look like one, but it feels almost like we're watching one. Um, you know, but there's a sequence. sense of relentlessness yeah. or continue, yeah, uh, like a wheel just spinning. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> I have to say also an anecdote about this is I had I had kind of the opposite thing initially to you, Vadim, where everybody I saw it with and initial reactions I heard were negative, and I was like, "Am I crazy? <laughs> is this not a masterpiece?" And I was sitting next to um, film comment contributor Edo Choi, um, and. Uh, he, uh, you know, I was really moved and I heard him crying throughout the film and I'm like, wow, we're really on this journey together, but he's really feeling it. And then I found out afterwards that he was laughing. Uh, 
So, yeah, different folks. I, I will say I found this movie annoying in the same way that I find one of my big wine spots annoying, which is a lot of, like, Soviet New Wave stuff, especially, like, Czech New Wave. Like, these movies are, like, very itchy and just kind of, like, edited in a way that seems designed to just, like, piss me off on purpose. And to bring that kind of energy at this late day through a whole new, like, selection of, like, new technologies is definitely an achievement of yeah. a kind. Uh, my verdict, personal verdict, would be people should seek it out when it comes and decide for themselves. And hopefully it comes to our shores. Well, I think that's our haul of the last couple days. So we'll end it on AO. Thank you both so much for doing this. A pleasure. A pleasure to hang out with you at Cannes and talk about movies. And hope to have you back. Thank you, Devika. An honor. I'm going to run to Zara now and grab a bow tie. Okay. <laughs> really? Thank you for having us. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. 